0: You know, I think rum is not like some other spirit categories in the way that it is transportive. If you taste rum from, you know, a a country like Barbados or Martinique or Jamaica, and you're lucky enough to have it on those, um, on those islands, you can't separate that experience. Anytime I have Jamaican rum, I will think of Jamaica. You know, there's just no, there's no separating that experience. And I think that's beautiful. I don't, I don't see that in any other spirit category.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here. And so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back for another episode of Decoding Cocktails. I'm Chris LeBeau. And uh, if this is your first time listening, welcome, welcome, welcome to the uh, next best thing in your life, maybe. Uh, So, uh, my guest today is Adrienne Stoner. She is the Rum Community Liaison for Maison Ferrand. Uh, I stumble my way through that every single time. I am a a guy with a French last name who does not speak French, so that was my attempt. Um, But uh, Maison Ferrand owns uh, Plantation Rum, which is one of my favorite places uh, to start people with in the rum world. They have such a broad portfolio of products. They are paying me exactly zero dollars to say that. Um, but um, it's just, it's great. They make a great dependable product. Adrian and I had a lot of fun with this conversation. Uh, she was in town at the time for a tasting I had the uh, pleasure to attend later on in the day. Um, but we not only talked about uh, her history in the industry. We talked about, uh, you know, uh, her, she comes from a, a line of, of bartenders, uh, and uh, that uh, she got her start early in the industry, and that she was fortunate to kind of be under the tutelage pretty early on of people like Paul McGee, uh, who founded bars like Three Dots and a Dash, as well as Lost Lake. Lost Lake did not survive COVID, unfortunately. But um, now she is on, she's moved from the other side of the drink-making bar to really the drink education side of things. And so we, of course, had a chance to dive deep into the spirit. We got to talk about things like the importance of ethically sourcing molasses. Uh, Sugar cane has a very rough history in times in terms of being on the ethical side of things. And so uh, plantation uh, holds that at a paramount of things. We talked about climate change and the import in kind of the role of how does that impact things, uh, especially we got into that with regards to barrels and the using and or not reusing of wood barrels. We're looking at you, Bourbon. Um, we also certainly talked about um, things like uh, tiki, um, how this category has kind of evolved a bit and where we need to be thinking about it right now in terms of what does appropriation look like and not useful. Um, Adrienne uh, spoke uh, to her love of the artist John Waters. So you'll get to hear her talk about her, uh, her pipe dream for a, a lovely John Waters themed hotel. And uh, we also jump into things like uh, aging. Uh, how do we think about uh, what aging does to a spirit and the importance of things like fermentation uh, and the quality of molasses depending on the flavors it's going to yield. Uh, it was a very uh, wide ranging conversation, as you can tell. Adrian was a lot of fun to chat with, I have to say. Um, you can find her on the web, at, uh, on, um, on Instagram, at Adrian, A D R I E N N E, Desire. Um, and Plantation is at plantation.rum. Links, of course, like always, will be in the show notes for this stuff. If for some reason I always forget to say this, you are find yourself really enjoying this or have been enjoying this podcast. Please subscribe or send an episode to a friend. Um, that's how we grow our reach, and I would most appreciate it. But with that aside, here's my conversation with Adrian Stoner. <music> So Adrian, you are a a lifelong, you know, person in the hospitality industry. What what at first drew you into this field, and how, and why the heck are you still here? What what what, what, <laughs> so, so what, what, what keeps you going at this point?
0: Yeah, um, that's a great question. Uh, I got into this field because it's the family business, in a way. Uh, everyone in my family works in bars and restaurants. Um, my mother is still a bartender out in these streets in Milwaukee. Um, I have a sister in Oakland running a couple of programs like bar managing, um, doing beer, and and focusing on, you know, very California craft stuff. And then uh, my sister is also in the industry back in Chicago. So we just, that's kind of the default. I started when I was um, 12, I think I begged my mother to come to work with her and started as a dishwasher, worked my way up to plating, then, you know, serving and bartending, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, until here we are all these years later, um, 17 years bartending uh, with some serving thrown in and some simultaneously. Uh, and I, I just live for hospitality. I don't know. I mean, I think what I like about working on the supplier side is that I have an opportunity to kind of show off rum category to people who maybe are a little tentative or are unfamiliar with the category. And to me, that's just an opportunity to introduce them to something that they might fall in love with. And that's going to I mean, technically, it'll just make your life better if you if you're you know turned on to something and you become enthusiastic and and you're an informed um, enthusiastic imbiber. It makes every experience better. So uh, yeah, I, I think it's just an extension of hospitality, and mm-hmm. I'm still in it.
1: <laughs> and so I guess yeah, for you in a way, it's like the the real impetus was um, you know. It, it was the family business. And so was it, so was the, was the draw really like, Hey, I see my, my mom doing this. Like, I want, I want to be like my mom. Was, was that, was that kind of what drew you in? And then just the ability to kind of, you know, convey that, that warmth and guidance yeah. to people?
0: Yeah. I think, uh, hospitality is about a connection with people, and I think at a at a young age, watching my mother work and getting to know all the regulars, all the regulars already knowing me because of their connection through my mother, um, that that's kind of uh, it's like its own community. So being drawn to that and being drawn to um, creating an experience for someone and by creating that experience, you're creating a connection uh, is really um special. I think it's really unique in a lot of other workplaces where things can be very sterile or um, very like hands-off. Uh, that's not the case in hospitality. You get to be very close with not just your customers, but also your coworkers. It's like going to battle every day and you have a different relationship than you would if, if you worked a nine-to-five, which was never, you know, not really ever on my radar <laughs> as it as it is today.
1: Yeah, I think for a lot of people out there, this, the idea that um, while it might not always be the most fun part of every shift, like when you are just getting just totally like, you know, annihilated on Friday at eight or whenever people are, you know, you, you are when you're strapped, uh, you know, coming out on the other end of that is very uh, affirming. And you're like, okay, we fucking did that yeah. together. So. I think
0: there's a rush, right? Like the service. Well, is such a, it's such a rush. I, I, you know, I love it. I love all parts of the the bar job. Either in the front, when you're getting chatty and you get to like talk to rum nerds, or, you know, when I worked at Lost Lake, like we would fight over having the service well shift because it's great. You can get in the zone. You can kind of um, create your own competition uh, with yourself about how many drinks or how fast you can make them. And it's really um, an accomplishment to cross build six to ten eight cocktails at once. You know, with ten ingredients each, it's really impressive. And I think you know, even if nobody's watching, that's a fun thing to do, um, just as a self challenge. And yeah, I I don't know why, like bartenders were just crazy for that kind of thing. Like, the harder it is, the the better the outcome. <laughs> but I and I I also think that like the other shining moment of your your team is closing as soon as you. Let out the last guest, and you're winding down. It's kind of the elation of of the evening where you get to talk about all the the drama that happened throughout the night, or anything funny, or you know, funny moments with guests. And uh, that's that's also like a magical moment that I miss. Those things I miss um, on in supplier work because I don't have that anymore. You know, I'm sure. kind of out here alone.
1: <laughs> One thing I was, but as I was digging into things, I was intrigued, and I just got my brain thinking. The number of of bartenders, people in the industry I know, who have told me that they've had revelatory moments, or that they, uh, the Sazerac, is one of their favorite cocktails, it's, it strikes me as disproportionately interesting. So, <laughs> so as somebody that is a lover of it, and I, I enjoy it myself. W- what is it about a Sazerac that draws you into it?
0: Uh, it's simple. It's not a drink to show off. Um, I mean you certainly can. You can find flair in anything, right? But I love that it's simple. I I have a hard time um, looking at cocktail menus and, and when you're reading ingredients lists and you're deciphering those menus, you know, with the exception of like a, a tiki drink that of course is gonna have ten ingredients. I think there people get carried away and there's something so beautiful about, you know, a a three ingredient cocktail. Um, Sazerac specifically, if you're using, you know, a really great rye or a really great cognac, something, you know, that is a little bit higher proof, a little bit spicier, it just shines through. And also the first time I had a Sazerac was in New Orleans, which is a magical place, a magical backdrop, certainly for any cocktail experience. So they're connected, I guess.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, while a traditional old fashioned is going to have some of that, I think, you know, for a number of people as well, encountering that, you know, that, that hint of absinthe or whatever, that 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 sweetness and the uh, kind of the, uh, the, the anise right there is very like, it's this interesting uh, uh, contrast between mm-hmm. the two as well.
0: And it's polarizing. I think it's more a bartender's drink than maybe the layman, right? Because a lot of people, if they're not used to it, they don't like that kind of licorice um, ingredient. And it's a... Uh, it can be a polarizing drink, but it's frustrating too because I I appreciate licorice. I love seeing that. I love seeing absinthe on any menu, and you just know when when your friends or we're working on cocktails and you see a menu go up and you're like, man, that one is not going to get ordered enough because it's so good. But people will see the absinthe and get turned off, and um, that's that's a whole other category. We just, someone needs to lead the charge to start <laughs> educating people and getting folks back into absinthe.
1: Yeah. And and I, I, I think that is, you know, when you're actually working more the front end of the bar or serving, you know, for me, uh, when I occasionally am up there, I think about it's like, how do I, without pushing, try to get somebody excited about something that I feel like they could quickly overlook because they don't understand it? Or, oh, ab, you know, if they're, you know, for a lot of the lay people, like, you know, see absinthe, oh, that's that thing that's going to make me hallucinate. Or, you know, it's like mm-hmm. getting them excited about those things as opposed to, um yeah, just allowing them to to do their uh, their panic order. Yeah, so,
0: yeah. <laughs> I think the well setting the stage right, like letting them feel relaxed is everything. If they if a guest feels rushed or they feel like they don't have your attention or your time, they will default to order the fastest thing or the easiest thing so that they're not bothering you, right? Like, w- well, what if this bartender doesn't have time for me? Um, it's, it's a lot easier if, if they feel like they're being rushed to just go for the vodka sodas of the world. But, um, yeah, step one is making sure that they know they have time with you and that they're comfortable. And then you can gain their trust, right? Like working through things that they like, get them, you know, encouraged to maybe try something different. And then, you know if if you can if your program allows to make it a free trial like if you absolutely hate this drink after this discussion we've had and you don't you don't love it that's okay we can always make a vox soda we can always make you know the simplest easiest thing but yeah i i think when you have the education and and a moment to really mm, talk about ingredients or talk about how to get out of your comfort zone the overall experience is better and hopefully that means they come back Mm -hmm. weekly yeah (laughs)
1: Yeah. Uh another thing, just like in terms of getting to know you the person, so I saw somewhere listed uh uh it seemed like one of your dreams would be a, a John Waters style uh a boutique hotel mm-hmm. with pool bar. Mm-hmm. Um I am quasi uh familiar with John Waters. Tell us about, about, <laughs> about this weirdo and why oh, and, and why you're drawn to this.
0: Well, John Waters is uh one of my favorite humans. Um I've seen him on tour many times. I don't know, I I think The Obsession started when I was a child, because I saw Hairspray when I was a kid, and uh, the original, not to be confused with the musical. Um, And he's a wacky, uh, really fun director who has like kind of this tongue in cheek, uh, I don't know if it's antagonism, I don't want to say that, but he's very um, in your face about like highbrow everything right he wants to like tear down these assumptions about like good breeding and and this old school um culture of uh good taste and so he's the king of of bad taste i think they call him the pope of trash as it's been known but it's because he he does a lot of comedy in his films uh, where he is either you know speaking in the person of someone who's like rich hoity-toity snotty you know and then kind of tearing down those walls and those end up being the villains and the the good people the protagonist in his film is usually someone who is not liked in normal society right like um someone who we would Typically dismiss or or even fear, so it's nice to have that complete opposite. And um, I'm obsessed with him. But yeah, the the, <laughs> the hotel patent pending. No one take my idea. That's um, right. That's right. I don't know. Honestly, I don't even know if people would come to this hotel, but it would still be fun. <laughs> and pool bar is uh, an essential, non negotiable, must have pool bar.
1: And at at the very quickly without all the, not very quickly, but like <laughs> without every single last detail, what does a John Waters hotel feel like? What what, 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 what might I encounter there?
0: Um, a lot of colorful rooms, right? Uh, a lot of um, kind of vintage style. Music is important. Music plays a huge part in all um, John Waters films and also just in my own life personally. Um, and I m- maybe not – entirely because of John Waters, but since I was a kid just always been into old school music, a lot of doo-wop, a lot of early jazz and um, you know, some like early delta blues, stuff like that. I mean, it's hard not to like the blues when you're in Chicago anyway. And uh, yeah, so I'm I'm drawn to kind of those those other like concepts of really fun music, classic style and bright colors.
1: Well, some of that has the makings for, I think, uh, uh, look of a look of a tiki bar too, Could, as well. Yeah, so there's, there's it, some it, crossover. Yeah, well, and I think too, in terms of uh, uh, prior to your current gig, which we'll talk about. Um, so you were at Lost Lake and Three Dots and a Dash mm-hmm. too. Is that right? Yeah. So both by. Paul McGee. Yep. So- yeah.
0: I worked for Paul. Um, I got hired right before, well, a few months before the opening for Three Dots and a Dash. And then when Paul left there to open Lost Lake, I was one of the few bartenders that went with. So I just kind of followed followed that train. I love Paul McGee. He's a friend of mine, and he's a really great mentor. He's the first person I've ever worked for that bothered to educate his staff. And, and we had a really great... Um, weekly education program even after the open even at one of the busiest bars in the country we were still dedicated to doing weekly um, deep dives either on a specific country of rum producers or specific producers and their terroir their their production methods their aging just kind of everything and taste everything it's really important to be able to offer that to your bartenders so they know what what is in every drink not just um like a drink robot told a recipe and, and go uh, so it was it was great to have that but I got into Tiki um, kind of before that I was already into the style because I was in like a rockabilly band and it was like they're connected somehow I don't know why there's crossover just old Scott I guess people like wearing costumes um, <laughs> from like rockabilly music uh, I liked Tiki bars but there weren't really any that I would go to that had great drinks. So when Paul was opening a place, I knew Paul from The Whistler, and I was like, if anyone's going to make a great tiki drink, it's going to be Paul McGee. And I was right. <laughs> and here we are all these years later.
1: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, you know, on the podcast, I've, I've talked about tiki before, but just for the sake of, of re-circling back to it for a minute, so, you know... Part of the work you do, which I think is very important, I'm very impassioned about this idea of like in reintroducing people to rum. But talk to us a little bit about tiki as a concept and what people can expect in a great tiki bar as opposed to the one that's just all juice and crappy rum or whatever.
0: So. Yeah, the I think the the inception of tiki wasn't even called tiki. It, it was just an escapist concept um, created by a, a guy in California. Uh, He was kind of – his name was Don the Beachcomber. He legally changed his name. And um, he wanted to create this space. You know, he was a masterful bartender um, just kind of out of nowhere. He didn't come from a background of bartending. But he was um, beach hopping, I guess, and collecting rum. And he had rubbed a lot of elbows doing uh, set design in Hollywood with all of these, like, artifacts that he'd taken um, from island to island. And so while there was this kind of um, exotification of uh, Polynesian culture, uh, he kind of had the tools already to show off these, these places um, with artifacts that he had. And that gave him the idea to kind of put together this bar. So the bar was tiny. It was escapist. It didn't technically have any, like, tiki as we know them. Like, tiki actually um, are the gods. And it became known as Tiki years and years later, but started with him, hit the table. And then uh, Trader Vic, who um, was up in San Francisco Bay Area uh, in Oakland, he started his own bar. He had a different theme bar, but when he saw what Down the Beachcomber was doing, he wanted to do the same. And it just, it was a hit. They commercialized it. It came at the right time, I think, when a lot of America in the, in the 40s um could not travel could not afford to travel there was a war um so escapism was really necessary for folks uh just for their own sanity um and with the ebb and flow of time we've seen it kind of come and go in popularity partially because of um just f- like access i think when people can travel they don't need the at home like tiki bars as much maybe um, but the tiki itself has evolved even now right we have so many bars who are distancing themselves from the kind of very garish and uh this this like um, like stolen artifact um style and getting into something maybe just vaguely tropical or something that is um creative but maybe in their own uh uh cultural um bandwidth I guess so we're seeing it change I'm I'm embracing that change I think it's you know long overdue when we were at Lost Lake we made a a strong effort to just never have like any iconography any faces in mugs you know everything we we leaned more towards plants um and animals you know fish fish shaped mugs and birds and things like that um because it was uh not Offensive. We don't want to be offensive, you know. the The idea that this um, movement was created out of escapism, but then leaned very heavily on uh, like mysticism and exotification of real places, you know, that's it's offensive. So uh, we're seeing that change.
1: It's it's one thing that I'm hopeful for with like the big movement around agave right now too. And while they're not necessarily on a complete parallel course, as we see this rising quality of all these tequilas, all these mezcals, it's kind of, you know, the transition from, oh, this is a party spirit with, you know, you know, salt and lime and crappy booze. It's more like hopefully that part also in tandem helps kind of dignify like, oh, let's not treat, you know, Mexican or Hispanic culture as a punchline, but as something to be celebrated and revered.
0: Yeah gosh i hope so um it's it's been uh interesting to watch agave rise in popularity in a, in a real way um i think uh, like my family were mexican american and seeing you know yes seeing the better um, the best versions of agave distillates coming to market in the U.S. The problem is, who's who owns these products?
1: And that part's right. You're right.
0: Yes. So there, there is still this kind of um, the ownership of it all and, and how much are people getting paid? I mean, we need to talk about labor. We need to ask those questions. It's very easy to taste something and and know that it's very good. Um, but I think we have to hold each other responsible as purveyors in supplier and, you know, on all sides, right? I think bartenders um, are are put to this task daily, but to, to hold suppliers responsible and to make sure that we know where things are coming from um, and make sure that they're ethically sourced if they're sourced, uh, if they are fully owned, who is in charge of that financial situation. Um, because agave takes forever to grow, right? This is not it's not a grass it's not like sugarcane is a completely different story because there there are issues with rum and um raising the bar of rum but sugar cane grows very easily uh we have issues with molasses sourcing for sure but agave you're waiting years so i get nervous when i see all these people get on on the bandwagon and then um what is what is tequila gonna look like in five years no one knows And who's going to have the bags of money when the dust settles is, yeah, a little nerve-wracking.
1: And, you know, um, so I'm doing hosting some tastings in a couple of weeks, and I, yeah, went out of my way to be like, okay, uh, how do we have a conversation during these tastings about, you know, these are owned in the country, and how do you talk about what percentage is going back to the growers? So Mm -hmm. absolutely, I think there is the double-edged sword of that. Visibility and that pressure means like oh there's there's an opportunity to make money let's send in international you know investors and then right. and then it all becomes a, a yield game um, so right the yield
0: game is a losing game and ultimately the it's easy you know you do need investors it's it's uh, really hard to distribute out of Mexico um, and you, I know a lot of people in that field and it's not an easy battle so I understand the, the desire to partner up with investors, but when it comes to yield, you will lose. It is a finite amount. And so we, we have to be patient. We literally have to wait for plants to grow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so moving over to your, so after many, many years of enjoying life behind the stick, you've Mm -hmm. now moved out to the other side. Um, so tell us a little bit about Uh, So I have a French last name, but that doesn't mean my French is any good. So, uh, (laughs) so Maison Ferrand, or Ferrand, however you say that, is the the uh, a company that owns Plantation, who you primarily represent. Tell us a little bit about Maison, and tell, and then we can get into Plantation. Yeah,
0: Ferrand. um, So Ferrand is owned owned and operated I guess the CEO is Alexander Gabriel he's also the master blender so he started um, back in the 80s uh, got enthusiastic about Cognac wanted to he went into business with the Ferrand company and then took over for the entire production Um, so by 1989 it was official I believe or 86 Mm. Uh, and then I believe my
1: notes say 89
0: Yeah. So he started in 86 and then it became full ownership by 89. Um, We launched a gin brand in 96, um, which we also produce. So it's not technically like an outside brand. Ferrand is the cognac, Citadel is the gin. um, And then we launched rum, Plantation Rum in 1999. Uh, So just 10 years later, he's in the rum game. But he started as a bottler and we're now a producer as well. So we're We were fortunate enough to uh, buy the West Indies Rum Distillery back in 2017. Um, That was kind of a part of a package deal. So with that ownership, we also share one-third ownership with the National Rums of Jamaica, which gives us um, uh, Long Pond and Clarendon. And those two distilleries, uh, we were already sourcing a lot of rum from both West Indies Rum Distillery and the distilleries in Jamaica. So it's nice to kind of like finally – have a real marriage with these teams and and see where we can grow from there
1: yeah so one of the things you know i guess outside of things like um you know agricole for example that i like about plantation is it feels like as i'm directing people to rum for the first time it's like this is a a brand that is a it's pretty dependable and a great place to start so I don't know how we begin to talk about your guys suite of products we don't have to cover all of them but how do you kind of begin to walk people into what you guys are 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 bringing to the market in this way
0: i like to show off uh the diversity of rum we are one of very few brands where you have rum from everywhere um so not just the rums we make in barbados and jamaica but also fiji peru panama um we we have rum from so many places and Uh, the conversation starts with the consumer, the guest, right? What do they like to drink? Where's their head at to start, right? Because you have to match those expectations. um, And then you can kind of expand from there. I, I have a lot of friends who get really into rum, especially bartenders. And we get so excited about super funky, heavy, high ester things. That's not where you want to start someone who maybe has never had rum before or doesn't drink Spirits Straight, you know, that there's like something off putting about that and, and that might turn them off of rum forever, which would be a travesty. So, um, you gotta pick and choose your battles, uh, when you're when you're um showing off rum to a, a new consumer. But I do think that our brand is very um it's affordable, it's kind of an easier intro for a lot of folks that Maybe haven't given rum an opportunity, and we have something for everybody because we have the blends, we have the younger um, single origins, and then we have vintages that are much higher in price if you if you want something higher proof or, you know, 10 to 15 years old, and then we have the extremes which are um, extremely rare. So we do have kind of something for everybody, um, which makes it easy. We're we're kind of a, a catch all that way, so it's not intimidating for folks if. They want to just try one bottle of rum, and it's under thirty dollars. You're you're in a safe space, as opposed to like, oh, I don't know, can I afford this hundred dollar bottle that someone told me I would like? But right. maybe you don't know. Like maybe maybe it was the same person who's like, yeah, you should try this hot overproof funky rum, and you're like, I hate rum forever now. Yeah. Um,
1: you said for people at home listening, uh, when we talk about high ester, talk mm-hmm. about what esters are, and. And perhaps why, you know, that wouldn't be a high ester rum, wouldn't be the perfect place to start certain people on their beginning path right
0: there. Yeah, esters exist in all spirits um, in varying degrees, right? Like vodka would have maybe 20, 60, like very low ester count. And then you have um, Jamaican rums that could be, you know, Jamaican is just a great uh, uh, place to, to start as an example but they excel in making super high ester rums and they can go upwards of 1600 you know like 500 400 so you're they're aromatic compounds that register as flavors on the palate and in rum they typically are like a range of fruity flavors so you'll have rums that taste kind of like overripe banana or pineapple that that's a big trigger um sometimes berry like cherry or raspberry flavor um coming through and that's not flavored right that's just a fresh distillate but those esters are dialed in and there are ways to create esters and rum through production um that they don't do in in some other spirit categories like vodka mm-hmm. which uh, would be interesting i wonder if someone would do like a dunder a high dunder vodka <laughs> I mean, it was just well, it couldn't be like you wouldn't be able to distill it that high proof. Anyway, I digress.
1: No, I think um, it's. Uh, I think trying to every once in a while uh, challenge people's perception of what something should taste like is valuable. So whether or not there's a market, you know, some distiller out there should mess around just for fun. There's
0: got to be flavorful vodka, and I just don't know about it. I I am not. Um, not a fan Shit. of neutral distill it, and I think if you even if you made like an interesting wash for vodka, you would distill it away to nothing. so I don't know those those volatile compounds would just um, disappear. so I, I don't know. I guess we'll have to see
1: yeah it's it's the general rub of like you know, I guess every once in a while you're using a, a spirit that is so flavorful that what you need is a little bit of heat, but maybe to pull that flavor down. But, yeah, for the most part, when I see vodka, you know, if, if vodka's leading, it's typically, you know, I guess your espresso martinis, you know, super hot right now mm-hmm. again. But, uh, but yeah, it's – Yeah, they're back. Yeah, they're back again. So um, now, obviously, we talked – a minute ago when we were talking about um, tequila and mezcal, we were certainly talking about labor and fair cost and all of these things. So uh sugarcane obviously is a field that has uh, – has its uh the, the uh, murky and not-so-good parts of its mm-hmm. own past. So how does a company like Plantation, who I love because it's a very affordable, delicious cocktail spirit, you know, three stars is like I burn through that with stuff. But uh, how do we uh, think about labor amongst the relatively affordable price of something like three stars?
0: So the price... Um, the price of our rum will vary depending on um, accessibility or what's in the blend, right? The the three-star blend or um, our blends in general are made to fit that price point. Uh, so that, that's dependent on um, the dis- the distillates or the age of some of the rums in the blend, or certainly like a, a very young rum would be a lot more affordable to put in a blend than like a 10-year-old Jamaican. Um But for us, the importance of ethical molasses sourcing is paramount. Um, As soon as we became producers, that was like uh, issue number one. Item number one is make sure that when we are purchasing molasses, that they are from sources that are certified by um, multiple agencies as ethical in production and also sustainable environmentally. Um, We're the first distillery in the Caribbean to be fully certified Um, with Bonsucro, which is uh, a sugar-only certification. Um, It's voluntary. There's no governmental agency saying you have to get certified, but we believe in doing the right thing. So um, being producers means that now all of our chain of custody is protected. uh, And we encourage other partners to do so, you know, when we're still sourcing from other places. It's tough to talk about Certification and have these audits come through um, sugar mills and and to sugarcane fields, because a lot of smaller producers they can't afford to be members. They can't afford to get the fancy audits. And I mean, I don't. They're not fancy audits, but having the audits is it's an ongoing process. And so Bonsucro is working with partners to make sure that everyone can get on board and make sure that they can um, help teach farmers. And, um, and sugar mill operators at any stage, whether they're a huge operation or a smaller group, uh, to streamline their production and make sure that not only are things efficient, but they're fair. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, that was rule number one. But that's kind of what we do out in West Indies Rum Distillery. And also NRJ is pushing for their own certification. Um, it's important. And a lot of people don't ask. I think some of the price points that we see on the shelf is kind of a race to the bottom because there are producers right. um, that get uh, uh, they get breaks on taxes. They can like sell into the U.S. tax free, and um, you know they basically are operating in the green as soon as they turn the still on. And we don't have that in in the West Indies. We have to kind of make sure that we're making something delicious because we can't afford to sell anything cheap it we would never hit that bottom price like three star is like affordable in the grand scheme of things but there's definitely rum cheaper oh yeah uh, oh yeah <laughs> there's eleven dollar bottles and you look at that price point and honestly it's upsetting because I think it cheapens what rum is the same way we've struggled you know in agave spirits is that rum should never be eleven dollars a bottle uh it it, especially if it had to get on a, a shipping container to get to wherever it is right I don't care what country it's from it needs to have the respective of labor and nothing um eleven dollars could really be paying for that labor right
1: we won't we won't name the very large producers that don't have to worry <laughs> about the taxes but they're they're out there look it up for yourself right there yeah or, or come it's back- funny
0: because like we're not funny but we're not a huge company we have a great reputation and um we we have a lot of uh, close friends in the community, you know, people who've been uh, with us through bartending programs and stuff like that. But we're not huge, like these these you know. There's this misconception of conglomerate size, and we are so much smaller. We're less than 20 people for the whole U.S. And and I think, you know, it it's just a testament of the quality of the products that we've been putting out all these years. Is that That will speak first. It's it's not massive marketing dollar spends. We're using that money to support the the sales, to support getting things at a reasonable price without, you know, cutting out the bottom dollar.
1: What I will say, and you can check me on like the right comparison, but in terms of things that have a similar appearance, go out and buy a bottle of or you probably have it somewhere deep in your liquor cabinet, break out your bottle of Bacardi Superior and taste that alongside of plantation three star and you'd be like oh one of these has is very rich in flavor and this other one well it doesn't really taste like anything so yeah. um mm-hmm. so uh whether I, I don't know if you would have a different one-to-one comparison but i feel like that is part of the job it's like saying oh you've had bacardi before and it's not memorable because well sorry doesn't superior doesn't taste like anything
0: uh, i just yeah i think what some producers excel at is their aging, and I think Bacardi is one of those um, companies. They get a lot of recognition for their aged rums, um, and the bad rap that rum gets is from years of having very, very neutral style rum because it was competing with vodka. It was competing with a market in the you know seventies, trying to stay relevant um, in in kind of the the growth of cocktail culture, or I guess the the change in co- cocktail culture. And so meeting those needs and having this like very light, very neutral style rum made sense at the time. And yep. we're coming out of that. I think we're, we're definitely seeing that change. I see so many uh, unaged rum, um, rums coming to market that are really fun, really wild, really funky, some high proof, some not, but definitely way more flavorful than what was available when I started bartending in the 90s that did not exist.
1: Right. And, and you are right that part of what we're looking at is uh, a market need that is still being met, but in part reflecting what what, what the state of the game was mm-hmm. back then, for sure. And
0: I bet they would, you know, I bet they would change at some point. We might see companies like Bacardi and, and some others just start coming out with something funkier or maybe start a new brand that will house that need right because because it's there because bartenders want it bartenders want to play with something different um those rums funkier rums have always existed technically they just weren't for sale here you know like yes it's just it's not that like funky jamaican rum was invented yesterday it's that we're finally getting people to drink it
1: yeah there's demand to bring it out Mm -hmm. here whatnot like we're seeing you know for better and worse with agave as well. It's like many, many of these things have existed. It's more like oh, there wasn't a market for it
0: for mm-hmm. a while. Yeah, the I want a mezcal but not smoky. Come on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Come on. Um so in addition to obviously sourcing great product, blending great product, uh something that's interesting based on uh the company's arc is in part how you are aging many of the rums mm-hmm. because uh, and it, it, you started producing cognac, but now you kind of roll them from one set of barrels to another. Is that is that correct? And how is that going to? How are we going to if they sat in the same barrel for a long period of time versus that rotation? Talk to us about how your flavors evolve because of that.
0: Yeah, the the master blender's job is uh, is one of scent and taste. Um, and it is not an easy job to get. A lot of these folks, um, specifically in Cognac, they've been doing it for years and years, decades. And um, Alexander Gabriel's no different. Uh, we look at aging as a dynamic process. So not just, um, notwithstanding the aging that we do on ships from Barbados to Jamaica, we literally like, we'll leave the rum in a barrel. We'll take the bourbon barrel, put it on a ship, take that. And it's you know, the motion of the ocean is affecting the the aging. Right. So we're still running tests on that to see how it changes and, and how dramatically the flavor is different. But then um, aging in a separate climate, slowing down the aging and everything is a process. So we we launched with this double aging technique, which we did not invent, of course. Um, the, the idea of aging in one barrel and then using a different barrel happens out of necessity because historically, pre before the history of bottling, you just had barrels and you used whatever you had laying around. So now, all these years later, we're like, what does that taste like? We have all these cognac barrels. Um, Alexandre was getting really into rum um, after some relationships in the Caribbean. He had... Uh, rum that was aged in ex-bourbon barrel and then decided to try and age it in cognac barrel and it was delicious so we accidentally became a brand kind of overnight because a, a retailer asked what the the product was so they could sell it and we're like it's not a product it's a thing we just were working on so you know that's the the long and short of it but now we do all kinds of different barrels and not just limited to rum I mean we've done cognac aged in rum barrels which I think are delicious um that one came out last year the renegade uh that's aged in a Jamaican long pond barrel it's delicious we can't call it cognac of course because it breaks the very strict rules of cognac but it's real good um we've aged gin and you know mulberry and wild cherry oak um And part of this is not just because we're curious and we want to experiment, although that's certainly part of it. It's also that in respect to the world we're living in, climate is an issue and the rules will eventually have to change about, you know, even in bourbon, right? First use American oak. How many trees do we have left? How often, how sustainable is this practice? And it made sense at the time because whatever the, I mean, the rumor about the lobby, the lobbyists um, making sure to put that in the laws so that they could protect uh, what it was Arkansas um, uh, um, forest. There was like a lumber lumber connection. So you know, it, even in France, you can't cut down a tree in France to make a barrel unless it's very old. I mean, almost a hundred years old. You can't. It's just not accessible. So if we're gonna be so confined to um, our barrel types, we're going to run out of barrels. And then the rules will have to change at some point. Um, So we play around with barrels, because that's just what we've always done. Uh, We'll see how it goes. I think the climate also is important to note, because slowing down that process. I've had a lot of rum um, bottled in Europe that was aged in Europe exclusively. And you know, it's funny, because you'll look at the bottle, and you're like, it's 13 years old, but it's very light in color so you know it's not aged in the Caribbean where it would get aggressively aged in that tropical climate but in France we have two different um, not only is the climate not tropical uh, we have a lot lower angel share but we have two different cellar styles we have a humid cellar that's kind of dark and with an unfinished floor um, and then we have a dry cellar that's you know bright, kind of like the ones you see in in bourbon country, stacked really tall and uh, cement floor and kept technically very as dry as possible. Um, So we, we play around with temperature and all of that is just to check on the barrel. If a barrel is getting too oaky or too spicy because it's in a dry cellar, we might move it to a humid cellar. We might... Um, if it's not getting enough wood or maybe we need to retoast the lid or we'll re-stave a barrel or just put a couple of like fresh staves in between the the old ones, you know, the French, they're not throwing anything out. They're yeah. going to keep those barrels for as long as they can. So we have a lot of like zebra casks. They're just like pretty fun, pretty fun to look at. But that's not a thing you find in a lot of, um, not a thing you find in, in bourbon country for sure. You know, single-use American oak, it's one and done.
1: I and I, I appreciate so many other producers rising to you know to use ex bourbon barrels because, I mean it 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 does incense me like I mean uh, I'm 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 sure there's merit in terms of flavor at times or whatever but it's just like yeah how many trees do we need to chop down like just because we wrote the law this
0: way yeah so, it's it seems like an arbitrary law it's that very, somehow it's very, it's very
1: arbitrary and I'm sure it's that it, has
0: not changed we're not even gonna like we no, we're not going to reopen that case? Okay. Yeah. seems weird.
1: the lumber industry certainly loves it. And, hey, I mean, here we are in the state of Missouri, which produces a huge percentage of Mm -hmm. it. So uh, certainly, you know, like the economic benefit of that, but it's it's a heavy toll on nature for sure in that regard.
0: Yeah, I don't think we should be cutting down all the trees, but
1: (laughs) – I I think we should cut them all down. Yeah, uh, cut them all down. Burn it. it. Here we go. Raise it. Yeah. so here as people listen kind of without being able to, you know, liquid delipse everything like here, if someone's sitting around, hey, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're sitting around they're like, I, I, I want to open myself up to a flight of things to kind of experience the spectrum. Are there three or four things in your portfolio that you would kind of begin to recommend in terms of someone experiencing different flavors? Or how would you kind of... Uh, guide people in in a way of like, hey, if you're looking for the intro to rum through plantation, here's a couple of things I would recommend you take a look at.
0: Yeah, I think any rum journey should start with Barbados uh, because they are great at balance. Um, They've been using column and pot still blend for a long time uh, since uh, the late 1800s. Actually, our distillery, West Indies Rum Distillery, our founder, George Sade he was the first to introduce column still to the island. Hmm. And since then, um, other distiller, I mean, he didn't invent the column still by any means, but this was in 1893. And uh, since then, all of the production has been a blend of column and pot still, um, which I just think helps create a very balanced, kind of easy and elegant sip. Uh, So that's always a good place to start. And then from there, you can see where folks headed like what I mean if flying blind I could just recommend a few but normally I like to have the conversation Barbados is easy anyone can drink that and then we can discuss next steps Um, because if they want something a little bit aggressive right like if someone normally drinks like high proof rye maybe that's you know maybe they need something heavier maybe I wouldn't send them to Panama, but maybe Jamaica, right? Like, let's start with a Jamaican rum or maybe a Guyanese rum. If you're already into very bold flavors, um, that would be maybe a better jumping-off point. So it varies. But you have to have Barbados in the lineup Mm -hmm, at some point. mm -hmm. And
1: I could be attempting right here, uh, just for people who like, okay, distillation, they've heard of it. But um, column versus pot, in general, Column is more efficient, going to often produce slightly uh, cleaner, lighter flavors. In pot stills, we tend to have some of these deeper, funkier flavors. Is that a half-decent synopsis just for people who are less familiar with distillation? That's,
0: yeah, that's fair. I, I think what goes ignored in the column versus pot war is fermentation, which is so important sure. Um. in, in all I mean, just in general, in all distillation, also in wine and beer, right? Fermentation is so important. And we don't usually talk about it because it is very highly technical. Um, so it can be kind of tricky to to uh, really dial that in and help folks understand. But uh, you can make perfectly um, interesting and flavorful rums in a column still. But yes, the column still at its inception and, and its main... Um, access that the pot still doesn't have is that it can make large quantities of rum um, with less uh, human interaction, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but it's different, right? There's just different tools. I think we what we talk about in the team is that, um, you know, Alexandre, he's uh, like, we, we like to think about everything as music. And it's funny because a lot of us are musicians on the team. But um, Alexandre knows the Alembic pot still. That's cognac, right? That That's all cognac producers n- knew. And then coming to the Caribbean, it's like you are a virtuoso and you can play all of these different instruments. A column isn't better than a pot. Um, they're just different. They offer different um, opportunities. So we actually, what I'm hoping to show off later today are some distillates from... Uh, west indies distillery that are from different stills so we can see why a, a pot still from the greg farm will taste different than a column still which will taste also very different than like the new hot pot there are two pot stills but they taste completely different there's not there everything affects the flavor so it's not just fermentation it's it's like a package um, like a fine-tuned instrument
1: Sorry guys, there's a tasting later today and we love and we love you, but you're not invited.
0: <laughs> no one's invited. It's a secret. It's
1: definitely a secret. Um so one other thing, and then let me know if there's anything else you want to talk about, but um so let's and it probably won't be the first time it's been covered, but talk to us a little bit about fermentation. So I mean it's obviously a, a you know, we are taking a a mash of things that have, you know, sugars. We're adding yeast in and we are beginning to create alcohol, but Talk to us a little bit about why th- this part is so important because yeah, we notice at the end of distillation there's the booze. But in a uh-huh. way, with fermentation we're creating the soup that is ultimately gonna allow us to yield this spirit. So talk to us a little bit about fermentation.
0: Yeah. Fermentation all you need to make the the wash technically is um, your sugar source, either sugarcane juice distill it, or distill it sugarcane juice or um, sometimes they'll call it honey or syrup Um, because it doesn't actually come out of bees, and uh, molasses or molasses, right? And then um, water and a yeast source. The yeast can be commercial, you know, like a commercial yeast, a brewer's yeast. There's um, plenty of options for that. And um, you'll get a much more, like, consistent product if you're using commercial yeast because it's just – it has one goal to just make sugar as fast as possible, just eat everything up and then become alcoholic as fast as possible. Um, your wash can bubble at about, I mean, if you're using commercial yeast, you can get it to like 7% ABV and then you can distill that. We like to make wash that gets to about 4%. Um, you end up suffering some of the yield of your distillate, but you end up with a higher, um, flavor content, uh, molasses type is also very important in your fermentation so in that wash if you're using grade a it doesn't have the same like like kind of grimy mineral qualities that blackstrap has and we like the yeast to struggle a little bit you want them to kind of like fight so we use blackstrap in our molasses well as our molasses blackstrap which is c technically um but that's a that's a style preference, right? There. Will you
1: tell the people what blackstrap molasses is?
0: Blackstrap is the uh, like the third. It's like the final product of making sugar so when you're making sugar the first thing you do um, you crush the sugar cane you get the juice you can cook the juice and cook like evaporate the water content of the juice and then you'll have um, like the syrup so you can make from the juice or you can make from syrup then you can put it in the centrifuge 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 after the first run will be grade A um, which will means that it will have the highest sugar content still in the molasses um, centrifuge a second time that's grade b and the third time is c so it's the final it's the end of the line so you end up with the lowest sugar content in the molasses but a much much higher amount of like mineral quality and those other ingredients those non-sugar ingredients in your molasses are kind of what help like struggle with the yeast and help create different flavors Um, if you want a very light style of rum uh, just use grade a molasses it'll be delicious maybe kind of light uh but again there's a, I, that's all to say i mean maybe you did grade a molasses but then you used some other like fermentation techniques or did like a one week long fermentation that's going to affect the flavor too so there's no there's no set rules there's no way to say that you know grade a is always going to be light or you know grade c is always going to be really funky like n- anything goes
1: mm-hmm yeah, a level of alchemy in terms of here, what are we starting with what are we mar- marrying with for what mm-hmm. length etc it's
0: really scientific yeah. I think you know I, I see um, the production of rum kind of bandied about as some sort of accident or you know we just happened upon rotting molasses and and that's how rum was invented like hey that doesn't give the labor any credit um, because we know that that's not the case I mean that that would be silly to believe Um, but it is highly technical, and if you want any sort of consistency in your product, you, you have to keep track. You have to be very scientific in your approach. So it's great to, like, be around our production team, um, especially the fermentation team. You know, Dar- Dario and Terry at West Indies Rum Distillery, they are just wizards. They're, like, super technical. It's really fun to watch them work and to, to talk to them about production because it's a completely different approach than – you know, a sales pitch you see at a, you know, at a tasting event or something.
1: Great. Um, Terrific. Um, Is there anything else we haven't covered that you want to talk about today at all? Anything that hasn't top of mind for you?
0: Mm, No, I don't know. I, I think ultimately, I just want more people to be drinking rum. And if you're already drinking rum, drink good rum. (laughs) Just uh, try everything. You know, I don't like people to box themselves in and feel like they can only have one, one style or, you know, you get married to a specific product or something. There's new fun things coming to the US all the time. So we're really fortunate, depending on where you live, of course, but Um, We're very fortunate to have access to some of these beautiful products. And if you are even luckier, come to the Caribbean and visit, you know, come see all the distilleries. I think it's a totally different experience to meet the team um, face to face and really uh, experience the rum in its true natural setting uh, because it lends that culture and that heritage in, in a context that doesn't exist or is a little bit harder to pinpoint when you're having it remotely and then once you have that connection it never ends you know I think rum is not like some other spirit categories in the way that it is transportive if you taste rum from you know a a country like Barbados or Martinique or Jamaica and you're lucky enough to have it on those um on those islands you can't separate that experience anytime I have Jamaican rum I will think of Jamaica you know, there's just no, there's no separating that experience. And I think that's beautiful. I don't, I don't see that in any other spirit category.
1: The diversity is wild. And I, yeah, I'll say that, I mean, I imagine you bump into this too. And, um, you know, there's something to be said for, hey, a a well-aged, you know, spirit out there. But uh, there is also, I think, uh, for some people, it's like, Older equals better, and it's really just older equals older. It, 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 it's great. To right. tr- the younger the stuff is, the more you're going to be able to taste the rum itself, as opposed to the barrel. And barrels are great, but give yourself permission to to drink unaged or younger aged spirits if older aged stuff is your thing.
0: That's a huge point. Uh, the The assumption that age is um, value is uh, that age equates with value is really only existent in spirits. No one ever says that about me getting older out here. Like, (laughs) no one's like, hey, you know, Adrian, coming into your 40s. Like, it's not, that's not the case in any other facet. But for some reason, we look at spirits and we think that older is always better. I'm the opposite. I think younger is always better. I, you know, I like maybe a little bit of age here and there, but I want to taste what it is raw. I want to see what the production is working with at, you know, the first go and then maybe a lightly aged. I mean, obviously that's just my preference, but I would encourage the same. Yeah, people should um, try other things and and not equate age with automatic value um, because it's not a fact. You know, I would say the opposite that age can can hide things that are um, lacking in value.
1: Yeah, and to kind of for people out there who this is, you know, you know, you do you, but. I think, hey, if you're in a circle of people that love aged spirits, you know, while the first time you walk in with that unaged spirit to the party, they might go, what's this all about? You get to then tell them the story about, hey, if you really want to taste the corn from that whiskey, you know, the rye, you know, Mm -hmm. the less time something is aged, the more you'll be able to taste those raw ingredients. And especially, as Adrian's talked about, when we're using the higher quality molasses, corn, agave, et cetera, you know, we want to taste that terroir, that original ingredient. And so give yourself the luxury of being able to taste those raw ingredients better as opposed to more and more barrel over time.
0: Agreed. Yeah, let them know. Yeah,
1: that's right. Spread the word. Uh, (laughs) Spread the word. uh, So— in terms of people uh, keeping up with Plantation and you, so uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. But where what should people follow? What should they be typing into their browsers and socials and all that um,
0: stuff? Yeah, we we have a website. We have an Instagram. Uh, we also have. Well, the West Indies Rum Distillery has their own Instagram as well, and I think they're they're all the same. Like at West Indies Rum Distillery at Plantation Rum. Uh, those are easy ways to just find out more about production or about the brands for me specifically. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and all I do is travel around and talk about rum. So, uh, you can catch me outside, but (laughs) there's a, Oh, that means fighting. I don't want to fight. Um, (laughs) but I do have rum always and I will travel. So if uh, there's a rum event or someone just has random rum questions, I'm always on.
1: There's she going to be. So, uh, Adrian, thanks so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's great.
0: Thank you. Hey,
1: everybody. Thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktail!